Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. To start this week's show, I wanted to thank everyone that has been ordering merch from Teespring. I wasn't sure how well this is all going to go, and if the first week's sales are anything to go by, it's been a great success. You still have a week to go, but then it goes, possibly never to return. The tote bags are still doing well, but I'm seeing a great mug resurgence as well. Very exciting. If you'd like to get your order before it all closes, then... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Go to queensofenglandpodcast.com forward slash merch and get some sweet swag. This has also been an excellent month so far on Patreon. I'd like to welcome and thank my new patrons, Denise, Chris, Vanessa, Jessica, another Jessica, and Courtney. Your support means so much, and I'm incredibly grateful to you all, as well as my long-standing contributors. As usual, you can get all the latest news from the podcast on the Facebook page, on Twitter, and the website, where I wrote a blog post recently about the move to Acast that I discussed in the special surprise supplemental episode that I posted on Thursday. I'd also like to remind you that I'm interviewing Elizabeth Norton tomorrow, so this is your last chance to submit a question via the Facebook page. Just scroll down a couple of posts and you will find it. To you new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 52, Catherine Howard, a headless Howard.
Last time, I brought all of the pieces onto the board. Catherine Howard, Francis Derham, Thomas Culpepper and Lady Rochford, as they naively and recklessly diced with death. Well, today, I will start by introducing a new piece, John Lassells, a lawyer, evangelical Protestant, and an ally of the now-dead Thomas Cromwell, he had no love for the Howards, and was now in the service of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramner. While now in the summer of 1541, he was one of those nobles who went home during the royal progress. There, he met up with his sister, Mary Hall, who had formerly been in Agnes Howard's household. She revealed to him what she knew, that Catherine had not been the good chaste girl that everyone thought she had been. This news was dynamite. It could bring down the Howards most certainly, but it was not enough on its own. So far, this was not really evidence at all, it was just hearsay. The punishment for slandering the Queen was imprisonment for life and confiscation of property. He would need something far more solid, but it did represent a roadmap for how the old Cromwellians, the Reformers, could bring down Norfolk and Catherine, and restore themselves to power. Lassells informed his master, Thomas Cramner, who mulled over what to do next. After a great deal of deliberation with his advisers, he resolved to tell the king by letter which he would leave at his pew at mass, much like how Henry Mannix had told the Dowager Duchess Agnes Howard about Catherine's dalliance with Derham a few years ago. You may have expected Henry's initial reaction to be one of anger, but actually it seems to have been scepticism. He gathered together a select group of councillors and announced to them that, quote, he could not believe it to be true, but that he, quote, could not be satisfied till certainly thereof were known. He announced that a discreet inquiry would be set up to investigate, but he, quote, would not in any wise that in the Inquisition any spark of scandal should rise towards Catherine. Lord Southampton was dispatched to interview Lassells, who gave the party line, that he took no pleasure in making these accusations, quote, saying that he made it only for the discharge of his duty. This was designed as a safety valve in case the charges could not be proven. Southampton then went on to interview Lassell's sister Mary Hall, who backed up his story. Then Cramner and Sir Thomas Riothsley went to Lambeth, where they talked to Henry Mannix. Initially coy, he then admitted to them that he had, quote, touched the secret parts of her body, and that he had wanted to go all the way, but then she had moved on to Francis Derham. So, the two detectives then went to talk to Francis Derham, who had already been secretly apprehended. They don't seem to have had to work very hard to get him to confess that he had, quote, carnally known the Queen many times while she was at Lambeth. While Mannix's evidence had been lacking in detail and anything solid, Derham provided everything that they needed. He gave them verifiable details, dates, everything. Further people were questioned, including the Queen's friend and Lady of Honour, Catherine Tilney, who revealed that they had been suspicious about Derham for some time, and his former wingman, Edward Waldegrave, who similarly corroborated the story. Cramner had his case. He brought the evidence to the King, who now appears to have been convinced of them. Note that, so far, no one knew about Thomas Culpepper, and all that had been deduced was that Catherine had not been a virgin upon her marriage to Henry, and suspicions that Catherine and Derham may have continued their affair after the marriage, though there was not much evidence for that. But, of course, there was also the most damning revelation, that Francis Derham believed that he had been pre-contracted to Catherine, and that she had referred to herself as his wife. That was more than enough to cause an almighty scandal and the end of Catherine's queenship. Norfolk was recalled to court, 
and the King's Council started to meet after hours with Henry so that they could work out what they would do next. Norfolk instructed Agnes Howard to explain herself, and she revealed what she knew about the affair. She gathered all the papers and letters that she had from that time, no doubt burning all the most incriminating ones, and gave the rest to the council. She had no other choice. This was very different from the investigation into Anne Boleyn. This was not a hatchet job on severely trumped-up charges. Catherine was guilty of something, that they knew, but there was no rush to the headsman's axe. It needed to be done right. It's not certain when Catherine first suspected that something was up, but the fact that everyone was acting very strangely may well have tipped her off. It was in November 1541 that she was finally summoned by Cramner. There he revealed that he had evidence in his possession, evidence of a pre-contract of marriage with Francis Derham. She initially denied it, but under intense questioning, she crumbled. Cramner was a very impressive man a survivor who managed to survive the falls of his two great allies, Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cromwell. It seems too that he made a superb detective as he managed to extract the truth from the Queen. Catherine was not a steely woman. She did not have the strength that Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn had. Let's not forget that she was still very young and nothing could have prepared her for this situation. Cramner, in his notes, describes a woman gripped by fear and hysterical, filled with, quote, lamentation and heaviness. Instead of going after her hard, he instead very cleverly used a more conciliatory approach. He made her feel as if everything would be alright if she just told the truth. He was soothing, gentle, manipulative. And it was that which extracted Catherine's confession. Now I'm not going to quote the confession in full as it is rather long, so I will summarise it for you. She first states that while Derham frequently asked her to marry him, she never agreed to do so. This is super important, because it was this that could completely damn her. It would invalidate her marriage right there and then. She also denied giving him certain gifts, which are listed in detail. She did, though, admit to sleeping with him on many occasions at Lambeth, and many of the details that I told you last week, the stuff about bringing him food and wine for the kitchens, for instance, and the revelation about their secret hiding place, come from this confession. After this confession, though, she clearly realised that she had given away far too much and went back on a few details and tried to excuse some of her behaviour. She claimed that she had been duped by Derham, that he had raped her, and that both he and Mannix had been guilty of deception. She claimed that she was the innocent party here, and that she had never been a willing partner. Knowing that her life was in serious peril, she wrote to the king, prostrating herself upon his mercy, attempting to throw everyone anyone under the bus in a desperate attempt to save herself. Quote, I, your grace's most sorrowful subject and most vile wretch in the world, not worthy to make any recommendation unto your most excellent majesty, do only make my most humble submission and confession of my faults. And where no cause of mercy is given on my part, yet of your most accustomed mercy extended unto all other men undeserved, most humbly on my hands and knees do desire one particle thereof to be extended unto me, although of all other creatures I am most unworthy either to be called your wife or subject. My sorrow I can by no writing express. Nevertheless, I trust by your most benign nature will have some respect unto my youth, my ignorance, my frailness, my humble confession of my faults, and plain declaration of the same, referring me wholly unto your grace's pity and mercy. First, at the flattering and fair persuasions of Mannix, being but a young girl, I suffered him at sundry times 
to handle and touch the secret parts of my body which neither became me with honesty to permit nor him to require. Also, Francis Derham, by many persuasions, procured me to his vicious purpose and obtained first to lie upon my bed with his doublet and hose, and after within the bed, and finally he lay with me naked and used me in such sort as a man doth his wife many and sundry times, and our company ended almost a year before his king's majesty was married to my lady Anne of Cleves, and continued not past one quarter of a year or a little above. Now the whole truth being declared unto your majesty, I most humbly beseech you to consider the subtle persuasions of young men, and the ignorance and frailness of young women." I was so desirous to be taken unto your grace's favour, and so blinded with the desire of worldly glory, that I could not, nor had grace to consider how great a fault it was, to conceal my former faults from your majesty, considering that I intended ever during my life to be faithful and true unto your majesty ever after. Nevertheless, the sorrow of mine offences was ever before mine eyes, considering the infinite goodness of your majesty towards me from time to time, ever increasing and not diminishing. Now I refer the judgment of my offences with my life and death wholly unto your most benign and merciful grace, to be considered by no justice of your majesty's laws, but only by your infinite goodness, pity, compassion and mercy, without which I acknowledge myself worthy of the most extreme punishment." It is in this confession that we see Catherine's argument expressed best. She portrays herself completely as the young, pure and innocent victim, especially with reference to Mannix, and downplays the length of her relationship with Derham, which she describes in very negative terms. She then, using very flowery prose, prostrates herself on the king's mercy. It seems that Henry and the council had no desire to have Catherine killed, at least for the moment. Their marriage was over, of that there was no doubt, the king would not accept having a wife who had concealed that she had not been a virgin before marriage from him. What they needed was a way to get the divorce through safely. If Catherine admitted to a pre-contract of marriage with Derham, then it seems likely that her life would have been spared. She would have been ostracised from court, stripped of her crown, but she may well have been allowed to live in the custody of Agnes Howard and had a relatively comfortable life. The problem was her stubborn refusal to admit to the pre-contract. Now this may well be because she did not consider this to have been the case. Indeed, it may well have been true that no pre-contract existed, but she knew that there were other, far more dangerous skeletons in her closet. And if she had been smart and had good people advising her, then she would have taken the plea. She still thought that there was a way out of this, but what she didn't know is that she had already incriminated herself far worse than she knew. You may have noticed that in both her confession and her letter to Henry, she had not admitted to her relationship with Culpepper. Indeed, she may have even been able to get away with it, despite their lack of care and concealing their relationship, but for one offhand remark she made in her original confession to Cramner. She's in the middle of a diatribe here against Francis Derham when she said, quote, But as far as I remember, he then asked me if I should be married to Mr. Culpepper, for so he said he had heard reported. At this point, Culpepper was not a part of the investigation. He had not been brought up at all. Cramner's reaction is not recorded, but one imagines him nodding sagely but furiously scribbling down a note to investigate the slip of the tongue of Catherine's. To further investigate this, she was questioned again, this time by Riothsley, and, after another bout of clever, manipulative questioning, the truth came out. 
or at least a version of it, as she fell short of admitting adultery. Once again, she attempted to throw someone else under the bus. This time, it was Lady Rochford, who she says threw Culpepper at her and manipulated her into becoming entangled with him. You can almost feel the desperation in the Queen's testimony. She is willing to do almost anything, anything, sacrifice anyone, if it meant that she could be saved. Being thrown under the bus must have been galling for Rochford, after she had said to Catherine that she promised, quote, to be torn with wild horses rather than betray her. Catherine may even have believed that she could have kept her crown, such was her naivety and delusion. Of course, Rochford was then questioned, as were Catherine's other ladies-in-waiting. Rochford, ignoring her promise to Catherine, completely denied any involvement, casting herself in the role of loyal servant forced to do her mistress's bidding under duress. No one believed her, and her story was undermined by the testimony of the other ladies. Of course, many of them were in great danger too, as they had known all of this and not told the king. During the council's investigations, the letter that Catherine wrote to Culpepper that I read to you last week was discovered, which, while it did not fully confirm the accusation of adultery, certainly read that way, and it also confirmed the charges against Lady Rochford. The furthest that Catherine would ever admit to, with regard to her relationship with Culpepper, was that he had kissed her on the hand. Catherine, Culpepper, Rochford, and many other associates of them both, especially members of the Queen's household, were questioned many times, possibly in Culpepper's case under torture. There, a complicated web of truths, half-truths, and lies were extracted from them. But at no point did Catherine or Culpepper ever confirm the accusation of adultery, though Culpepper did state that it was his desire to sleep with the Queen, or on Catherine's part, the pre-contract with Derham. Catherine Tilney, who had been with Catherine Howard through it all, from the sexton at Chesham right through Lambeth and the Royal Bedchamber, was a key source for Catherine's sexcapades in her youth. Tilney had been an unknowing accomplice in a lot of this, as she had been the messenger girl for Catherine when she passed notes to Lady Rochford during the dalliance with Culpepper. This put her at the centre of it all, and in grave danger. However, she didn't actually know anything concrete, which made her a willing yet oddly unhelpful witness. On the part of Rochford, she stated that she believed that Catherine and Culpepper had committed adultery together. Quote, Culpepper has known the Queen carnally, but she had never seen it, clearly thinking that this technicality might save her. Her testimony is described in one account as being, quote, a confusing mixture of half-truths, unprovable improbabilities, and complete lies. There is no way, if it all went down as even she said it, that she could not have known what was going on. Her protestations of ignorance are simply too fanciful to be believed. Rochford has not been well received in a lot of the historiography. Many writers blame her for the downfall of both Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, but I think this is rather unfair. In the case of Anne Boleyn, she and her brother would have gone down no matter what. The royal will was so strong that nothing could have prevented it. In Catherine's case, Rochford's testimony is highly suspect, though, due to a complete mental collapse, which was described as, quote, a fit of madness by which her brain was affected. Finally, everyone's fate was sealed when Culpepper made his own confession, possibly, as I said, under torture. He didn't have much choice. The letter found in his chambers was pretty damning. Why he kept it is anyone's guess, but I imagine it was either for purely sentimental reasons or as insurance for the future, in case he ever wanted to make a claim for her hand. Now, this wasn't a full confession, as Culpepper had a trick up his sleeve. He stated that he, quote, intended and meant to do ill with the Queen, and likewise the Queen was so minded with him. Now, it's hard to know whether this was a really dumb thing to say, or quite tricksy. To quote Gareth Russell, quote, 
It is impossible to judge if Thomas Culpepper decided that only honesty could save him, or if he was an almost ingenious liar. That claim that they would have slept together at some point in the future is the crux of deciding if Culpepper was confessing honestly, or pursuing a strategy of a lie that sounded so shameful that his accusers might have assumed it was the truth. In other words, by coming so close to a full confession, essentially admitting to an offence that would lead him to serious trouble but not going all the way, he essentially hoped that they would just take him at his word. The reason why adultery with the Queen was treason was that it threatened the succession. He hadn't done that, so it couldn't be treason, even though he planned to. If that sounds a pretty crappy argument, then it was. He had very few cards, he bet on a terrible hand, and he lost everything. Both Lady Rochford and Culpepper were sent to the Tower after these confessions, where preparations were made to execute them. However, English law banned the execution of anyone described as insane, and so Rochford was placed in the care of the wife of the Lord High Admiral and given regular medical checkups. This is not for her own health, according to Eustace Chapuis. Quote, The king takes care that his own physicians visit her daily, for he desires her recovery, chiefly that he may afterwards have her executed as an example and warning to others. So now the king's council were satisfied that Catherine had slept with Culpepper. Yes, there was no real evidence, only hearsay, conflicting reports and some obvious lies, but this was the 16th century. It was enough. The Treasons Act, 1534, describes anyone as guilty of treason if they, quote, do maliciously wish, will, or desire by words or writing or by craft imagine, invent, practice, or attempt any bodily harm to be done or committed to the king's most royal person. If that sounds like an act that was sufficiently broad to convict almost anyone of treason if a prosecutor put his mind to it, then yes, yes it was. It was designed to be so. You didn't need to have done anything, you just needed to have intended to do that. And how can you prove that? It would be almost impossible in any modern court. Lacey Borden-Smith describes it thusly, Culpepper, Derham and the Queen were all caught on the basis of intent, on the secret malice that lay concealed within their evil hearts, and the presumptive carnal desires that lay hidden in their imagination. Culpepper had already admitted to intending to sleep with Catherine while she was the Queen. Therefore, he was guilty. For Derham, his coming back to the service of Catherine was an, quote, ill intent that she, quote, traitorously imagined and procured that he, Derham, should be retained in the service of the Queen to intend that they might continue their wicked courses. This was also enough to convict Catherine as well, but the employment of Catherine Tilney was further used to condemn her. Tilney had given evidence of their misspent youth at Chesham and Lambeth, and therefore her presence in the Queen's household was, quote, proof of her will to return to her abominable life. This view was backed up by the testimonies of Alice Restworld, Margaret Morton, Joan Bulmer and Mary Hall, who had also been with the Queen through it all, as well as the servants at Chesham and Lambeth from when Catherine had been there. The evidence that they gave added more fuel to the burning fire. It's all pretty anecdotal, talks of smouldering looks, locked doors and suspicious comings and goings. Okay, so this is all the evidence that was stacked up. But of course, there was far more going on behind the scenes than a benevolent search for the truth. The downfall of the figurehead of the Howard family, the symbol of their ascent to the top of the English political food chain, was a gift to those who opposed the Duke of Norfolk. Their enemies sought to expand the conspiracy, stating that this whole thing was one giant plot. Norfolk and the Howards, according to their claims, had maliciously misled the king into marrying this hussy of a niece in order to further his career. 
A statement which has, you know, a ring of truth to it, to be fair, if you strip away the majority of language. So many Howards were caught up in the sweep surrounding this that the tower could not accommodate them all. Among them were Catherine's uncle, Lord William Howard, her aunt, Lady Bridgewater, and the Dowager Duchess, Agnes Howard. The one man who managed to dodge, weave and escape all of this was the Duke of Norfolk himself. He disowned them all, and after the trials, which I will relate in a bit, he retired to his estate to wait for the storm to blow over, but not until he had thrown a few jabs at his family to save his own skin. And I'm going to quote it. To remind you, when he refers to his mother-in-law, he means Agnes Howard, and when it's his nieces, he means both Catherine and Anne Boleyn. Quote, Most noble and gracious sovereign lord, Yesterday came to my knowledge that my ungracious mother-in-law, my unhappy brother and his wife, and my lewd sister of Bridgewater were committed to the tower, which, by long experience, knowing your accustomed equity and justice, used to all your subjects, I'm sure is not done but for their false and treacherous proceedings against your royal majesty. Which, revolving in my mind with also the most abominable deeds done by two of my nieces against your highness, hath brought me into the greatest perplexity that ever poor wretch was in. Fearing, your majesty, having so often and by so many of my kin been thus falsely and traitorously handled, might not only conceive a displeasure in your heart against me and all other of that kin, but also in manner abhor to hear speak of any of the same. Wherefore, my gracious sovereign lord, prostrate at your feet, most humble I beseech your majesty to call to your remembrance that great part of this matter is come to light by my declaration to your majesty, according to my bounded duty, of the words spoken to me by my mother-in-law, when your highness sent me to Lambeth to search Derham's coffers, without the which I think she had not been further examined, nor consequently her ungracious children. Wherefore, most humbly, I beseech your majesty that by such as it shall please you to command, I may be advertised plainly how your highness doth weigh your favour towards me, assuring your highness that only I may know your majesty to continue my good and gracious lord as you were before their offences committed. I shall never desire to live in this world any longer, but shortly to finish this transitory life, as God knoweth, who send your majesty the accomplishments of your most noble heart's desires. What a nasty little snake he was. Thanks to his slimy efforts, Norfolk did just about manage to survive this political storm, and even managed to emerge at the other side relatively unscathed. He truly was the ultimate survivor. The final task for the King's Council to do was to make sure that the Queen's coming demise was met with no sympathy. Times were fractious enough in England at the time to risk killing a Queen who might still have harboured popularity. She was a relatively unknown quantity with the people, but no one likes seeing pretty young women executed without understanding why. The smear campaign started in the Royal Court, who were told of the Queen's quote, abominable demeanour and then spread to the royal household and the servants. Catherine's servants were paid a quarter of a year's wages in severance and given other jobs, where no doubt they spread stories of their former mistress's behaviour. Then, foreign governments were informed. By now, stories of Henry and his wives had become a matter of some mirth and derision abroad, so this news must have been met with a combination of sighs, shrugs and jokes at his expense. But of course, unlike with Catherine of Aragon, no foreign protest was made about Catherine's fate. She had no foreign connections, no knight in shining armour leading an army from the continent to save her. 
her great benefactor at home had betrayed her to save his own skin. Her friends had tripped over themselves to condemn her, just as she had done also to save her own skin. The whole thing, everything that I have described in this episode so far, is, to say the least, horribly undignified, and frankly rather embarrassing. But it is from here that we move from farce into tragedy. The first to face their makers were Derham and Culpepper. On the 1st of December 1541, they were taken to the Guildhall in London and put on trial for high treason. The Lord Mayor of London presided over proceedings, and among the jury were the Earl of Southampton, the Sheriff of Lambeth, and the Duke of Norfolk, who did his very best to appear suitably outraged by their crimes. In attendance was every single Privy Councillor. It was vitally important that everyone was there to see quote-unquote justice being served. Both men pleaded not guilty. The evidence brought forward included the Queen's confessions and information from the various other interrogations that I've already talked about. Despite the lack of any concrete proof, the jury came back with their decision that there was, quote, sufficient and probable evidence to convict the two men. As the crime was high treason and neither of them were high-born, the sentence was the most severe that it could be, that they would be hanged from the neck until they were on the brink of death. Then they would be castrated and disemboweled, with these pieces then burned in front of their eyes. Only then would they be granted the mercy of beheading, whereupon their body would be chopped into four pieces. As this sentence was passed upon them, Norfolk, in a desperate attempt to save his own skin, burst out laughing. Even his own friends apparently rolled their eyes. Both Culpepper and Derham appealed to the king for clemency, not to receive pardons, but to have their sentence commuted to simple execution. In recognition of services rendered to him in the past, Henry agreed to commute Culpepper's sentence. Derham, however, would face the full fury of the law. The sentence was carried out ten days later at Tyburn. By all accounts, both men died bravely and with honour. After the deeds were done, their heads were, as tradition dictated, placed on spikes on London Bridge. Of the dozen or so howers caught up in the sweep, their lands and possessions were seized and appropriated. These include the ladies-in-waiting that I've been talking about, the Dowager Duchess, Derham's wingman, Edward Wardergrave, and Robert Downport, whom I have rather neglected in this story for reasons of clarity, but he had a horrible time of it during the interrogations. Mary Hall was pardoned, but the rest were convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment. The reason why their lives were spared seemed to be due to the success of the smear campaign against the Queen. According to one chronicler, quote, it was thought extreme cruelty to be so severe to the Queen's kindred for not discovering her former ill life, since the making of such a discovery had been inconsistent with the rules of justice or decency. The old Duchess of Norfolk, being her grandmother, had her of a child, and it was said that for her to have gone and told the King that she was a whore when he intended to marry her was an unheard of thing so the not doing of it could not have drawn so severe a punishment from any but a prince or that of a king's temper. Eventually, some months after the execution of Catherine, they would be pardoned and allowed to live out their lives in peace. Meanwhile, Catherine had been stripped of her title of queen in late November, as the evidence of the pre-contract with Francis Derham meant that Henry's marriage to her was over, and had never been valid. She was forced to return all of her jewellery, and her assets were stripped from her. She was then sent to Sion Abbey in Middlesex, near the modern London suburb of Twickenham. There, she continued to be questioned, and her mental state began to deteriorate further. She would have known about the deaths of Derham and Culpepper, which must have affected her greatly, as well as of the suffering of her family. 
There is no source that I have found that talks of how she reacted to this, but one imagines that she would have been overcome with guilt and grief. Comparisons with her cousin Anne Boleyn are given their similar fates are common, and it appears that through December and early January, she experienced the same violent mood swings as Anne while waiting for her execution. These range from sullen depression to outbursts of gaiety to moments when she was, quote, more imperious and commanding and more difficult to please than ever she was while living with the king. The reason why she was forced to endure all of this waiting was that her fate would be decided by Parliament, which would not sit until the 16th of January, more than a month after Derriman Culpepper had been executed. It's no wonder that she was going literally out of her mind. This cruel purgatory is more than I think anyone, much less a young privileged queen, could have endured. When Parliament did finally sit, it debated what to do with Catherine and Lady Rochford for four days in the presence of the King himself. While Henry did not speak, his Lord Chancellor spoke for him. He denounced Catherine for her crimes in the strongest possible terms, leaving no one in any doubt what the royal position was. On the fifth day, a bill of attainder was brought before Parliament. This was, of course, different to what had happened to Anne Boleyn. She at least had been granted a show trial. Catherine would be denied even that comfort. The Bill of Attainder allowed for a guilty sentence to be passed without any evidence being offered in defence or a jury convened. It was, though, met with opposition during the first reading. No one present was willing to defend Catherine, but it was thought improper to do it in this way. The Lords in particular favoured a full trial, but it seems that Catherine herself made it known that she did not want one. She had decided that her only possible escape from all of this was to accept her fate completely. Maybe then, the king would show her mercy. But Henry was in no mood to be merciful to a woman who he saw as having humiliated him in the basest way. The act received a second reading and passed, sentencing both Catherine and Lady Rochford to death for high treason. Parliament furthermore absolved the king of any responsibility by stating that the decision was theirs and theirs alone. Henry didn't even have to sign the warrant of execution himself, as it could be stamped with the royal seal by a functionary. Parliament then further passed the law, allowing the execution of the insane, which would permit the sentence of death to be carried out on Lady Rochford. Soon, after all this passed through Parliament, Catherine was informed that she was being brought to the Tower. She had convinced herself that Henry would be merciful, and she reacted with panic and shock at the news, refusing to move. Eventually, she was manhandled into the barge by some burly men. Dressed in black, she was rowed down river to London. Just before arriving, she would have passed under London Bridge and seen the heads of her two lovers, Derham and Culpepper. Catherine and Rochford would have to wait for three days until Monday the 13th, as sentence could not be passed on the Sabbath. On the night before execution, she was up all night preparing herself. She asked the block upon which she would be beheaded the next day to be brought up so that she could practice, quote, by way of experiment. She gave her last confession, but even then she denied having slept with Culpepper, stating that, quote, God and his angels to be her witness upon the salvation of her soul that she was guiltless of that act of defiling her sovereign's bed. At 7am the next day, almost all the privy councillors gathered at the tower, her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, being one prominent absentee. It was a very cold January morning, and, dressed in a dark gown, she was brought to the scaffold. There, she gave her last speech before the small crowd in the tower yard. Legend has it that in her speech to the crowd, she made the shocking announcement that she died a queen, but would rather have died the wife of Thomas Culpepper. 
while that makes for a good story, sadly appears in an apocryphal count and comes from one riddled with inaccuracies. For when it claims that she was interrogated by Thomas Cromwell, despite the fact that he had been dead for well over a year before any of this happened. The only report that we have of what she said from someone there present is from an Otwell Johnson, a London merchant, in a letter to his brother. He does not quite quote both of them directly, as you will hear, merely summarising the final words of Catherine and Rochford. Quote, The Queen and the Lady Rochford, whose souls I doubt not be with God, for they made the most godly and Christian's end that ever was heard of tell, I think, since the world's creation. Uttering their lively faith in the blood of Christ only, with the wonderful patience and constancy to the death, and, with goodly words and steadfast countenance, they desired all Christian people to take regard unto their worthy and just punishment with death, for their offences against God heinously from their youth upward, in breaking all of his commandments, and also against the king's royal majesty, very dangerously. Wherefore they, being justly condemned, as they said, by the laws of the realm and parliament, to die required the people to take example at them for amendment of their ungodly lives, and gladly obey the king in all things, for whose preservation they did heartily pray, and willed all people to do the same, commending their souls to God and earnestly calling for mercy. After saying her final words, Catherine's ladies helped her remove her cloak, bare her neck, and position her in the block. Mercifully, her head was removed in one deadly strike, avoiding the grisly end meted out to some of those who had inexperienced headsmen. Straight afterwards, Lady Rochford came out and received the same fate. Their bodies were taken to the Tower Chapel, where they were hastily buried near the bodies of fellow traitors, other friends and servants of the King, who had fallen from grace. These included Thomas More, as well as Catherine's cousins, Anne and George Boleyn. This meant that the Lord and Lady Rochford were united in death, both victims of the wrath of a humiliated Henry. Catherine was the youngest person interred in that tomb. She was most likely not yet 21. Like her cousin Anne Boleyn, a lot of the debate surrounding Catherine Howard converges around the question of whether or not she did the things for which she was convicted. In actual fact, I believe this is really a misnomer, as she was convicted of intending to sleep with him, along with her crimes of not admitting to the pre-contract with Francis Derham. Whether or not she actually banged him is not really that important, though for the record I have my suspicions that they did. In the first episode, I mentioned the common narratives used to describe Catherine by modern writers. These were the silly slut, the naive pawn, the victim of abuse, and the flawed yet well-meaning queen. Well, as you know, I don't really support the child abuse narrative. It predicates on a belief that she was not a willing engager in sexual acts with Mannix and Derham, that these occurred when she was far younger than I believe she was. Those that call her a slut, or do so in less provocative language, I think, are rather unfair. While I would not say that she was a victim of abuse, as this is not the standard of the day, she was let down by Agnes Howard and her household, who failed to curb some of the wild excesses that went on at Lambeth and Chesham. Catherine and the girls with which she grew up with learned all the wrong lessons in the household of Agnes Howard. As for the naive porn argument, that does seem to have some substance, but not to the extent that some believe. I don't see Catherine as being thrust into the king's bed by Norfolk, as some have described. She was placed in the queen's household by her uncle, yes, but this was not with the intention of making her the queen. Her gaining the crown was really all her own work, the product of her natural beauty and charm. Her naivety, though, is a big factor in her downfall. She failed to realise at all points just how seriously her actions would be judged should she be caught. 
she was not savvy enough to know what was considered acceptable queenly behaviour and what was treason. She had not learned lessons from childhood and early adulthood about how a lady was supposed to act. Some of the blame, yes, must be cast at those responsible for her upbringing. Some must also be cast at the men who became entangled with her, though in many ways I would argue they were as much the victims as she. But, and this is important, Catherine must take some of the blame too. She was not tricked into sleeping with Derham. She was not fooled into writing that incriminating letter to Culpepper. She was not forced to keep meeting him in secret under the king's nose. It was partly her own fault that she died, just not all her own fault. In the end, she is some of the best evidence that, in such fractious times at court, it took a special kind of woman to be a wife of Henry VIII and thrive. Catherine wasn't really all that special, and she paid for it with her life. One of the first contemporary writers to re-examine Catherine's life with a little more generosity than most was Thomas Wolsey's biographer and former servant George Cavendish. In his Metrical Visions, poems depicting tragic Tudor figures, Cavendish suggested an epitaph for Catherine, for of course, as a traitor, she had been denied one in real life. It is rather moralistic, but I think it captures something of the Catherine I see, a young woman punished for the mistakes of youth. It reads, By proof of me, none can deny that beauty and lust, enemies to chastity, have been twain that hath decayed in me, and hath brought me to this and untoward. Sometime a queen, and now a headless Howard. And that is all for this week. Next time, we move on, finally, to Henry VIII's final wife, Catherine Parr, a twice-divorced beauty with an intellectual clout that dwarfed that of Henry's poor deceased fifth wife. I say next time because I'm going to be crazy busy over the next week, and so I won't have time to be able to get an episode out for a fortnight. In the meantime, don't forget to keep ordering all that merch, and I'll see you all in two weeks. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.